This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Gaia Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Dr. Ruben Ziegler from the University of Reading. Uh, Ruby, the right to vote. Are international standards achievable or even desirable? Okay, so I should have actually reversed kind of achievable or desirable, but I thought uh, this sounded uh, a bit more catchy. Um, What I want to do is essentially branch off from um, this uh, event, and for those of you who don't live on on these islands, must uh, must be looked at with a degree of fascination uh, uh, combined with uh, amusement, uh, but for us it is pretty much more on the side of kind of shock and awe, uh, which is happening on the 23rd of June. And the reason I want to look at the Brexit franchise, as it's referred to, uh, and look at questions of inclusion and exclusion in this referendum is because I think the referendum franchise highlights both the fact that there are anomalies um, in the choice of franchise for this very important referendum, but also equally the fact that we're actually missing sufficiently rigorous, clearly standard-bearing international instruments uh, that could fully address and redress those anomalies. Um, And so I think um, that will become perhaps more evident as I go through some of what I perceive at least to be uh, anomalies in this franchise. So I'm going to talk particularly about uh, prisoners and about the question of non-resident citizens and non-citizen residents, or in, in another order uh, of, of that uh, phrasing. And what I want to say is that the fact that the right to vote, are the, uh, unlike many other rights, um, is um, subject to qualifications. That is, we all accept that not everybody have a right to vote everywhere, wherever they are, transient or otherwise, does not mean that uh, it shouldn't be subject to scrutiny, including international scrutiny. On the contrary, what I would argue, that the fact that we, uh, we today, in the 21st century, limit those type of qualifications to the one that concerns membership by and large, uh, with the exception of competence, sort of age-level competence. So when we think about membership, when we think about issues like citizenship and residence, we think about them within the framework of membership, highlights and illustrates the significance of having a right to vote in a particular electoral process and equally or conversely of being denied that right to vote. It is important for the individuals involved, but it is also important for the societies in which those processes take place, both because voting is facilitating, but also because it's a legitimating process. This very much links to uh, Michael's presentation earlier and to Guy's work on these issues. And so after talking about some uh, voting qualifications and, and, and those meanings, I want to talk about some of the international standards that exist. Moving from the ICCPR to looking at specific arrangements that exist, uh, perhaps the strongest ones uh, in terms of uh, binding nature uh, uh, related uh, to non-resident citizens in the Migrant Workers Convention, uh, which, which is then betrayed by the fact that it's only ratified by about 48 states. Um, and talk about the EU Commission recommendations 
Um, in that regard, and when it comes to, non, um, to non-citizens, talk about the European Convention on Participation of Foreigners in Public Life at the local level, and then finish by talking about the IPU. So this is what we're faced with in this coming referendum. Now, uh, for those of you who do live here and vote, fear not, this doesn't mean that about 4 billion people get to vote in a referendum, although you, it might be a kind of refreshing exercise to try and identify your flag uh, in, in this map. Uh, but what it does tell you uh, is, as we'll see in a few minutes, the franchise for the, uh, for the referendum, which very much follows the UK general election franchise, doesn't follow either a citizenship principle or fully a residence principle. It has a very peculiar nature uh, of having selective over and under inclusive um, uh, participation rules. So if we look at the EU Referendum Act, uh, compare it to uh, the baseline, which is the Representation of People Act 1983, then the core electorate, the one that under any international instrument will be, will be recognized as, as the base uh, group, the one that uh, the question of membership doesn't really arise in relation to because they satisfy both citizenship and residence requirements, are those who live in the UK, are residents of the United Kingdom, uh, are citizens of the United Kingdom, and are aged over 18. There was a Lord's Amendment, incidentally, the, the, the unelected House of Lords uh, passed an amendment trying to enfranchise more people in its referendum. 16 and 17 year olds, uh, it was rejected by the Commons, and so uh, it's not included in the referendum. There are two other groups that were added in addition to the general election franchise, and these are peers who, um, serving on the unelected House of Lords, can't vote for the House of Commons but can vote in other procedures, uh, including local elections, so they'll be able to vote in this referendum, and people who live in Gibraltar, and this follows the fact that Gibraltar also votes in, um, for the European Parliament for a UK seat in the southeast. Um, <coughs> but importantly, and this is where that map comes uh, to play, citizens of the Republic of Ireland who are resident in the United Kingdom, but also all qualifying Commonwealth citizens who are resident in the United Kingdom can vote in this referendum. Now, I'll talk a bit later about uh, some potential challenges that that may raise uh, from a legal perspective under EU law. Um, now, other non, non-citizens in the United Kingdom will not be able to vote, and that, uh, as you will imagine, includes many EU citizens. So, so what are the two um, kind of major exclusions uh, that are born to bear? The first is the one that is, has by now become quite uh, uh, pernicious in, in, in UK uh, public life since, since the House judgment in 2005, and this is the disenfranchisement of prisoners. So we've had a series of cases from Hearst through Scopola to first through McHugh in different procedures, different electoral processes where... Um, the European Court of Human Rights and then the UK Supreme Court in Chester McGee held the UK position to be incompatible with the European Convention when it applies a proportionality test. Now, the problem is that the language, and this is where I'm kind of base one on talking about the lack of sufficiently rigorous standards, uh, the language of the um, 
provision in the European Convention, Article 3, Protocol 1, rather unfortunately uses the term the free expression of the opinion of the people in the choice of the legislature. And the Strasbourg Court, uh, not being particularly interventionist that it's often been described, uh, has actually found referendums writ large to fall outside the ambit of this provision in its entirety. So what this means, for instance, is that whilst the exclusion of a prisoner um, uh, from local elections in the United Kingdom is subject to uh, an incompatibility uh, 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 ruling and in principle uh, would deserve and, 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 and uh, should, should lead to a remedy, uh, the exclusion of that same uh, prisoner from what the United Kingdom government describes as a one-in-a-lifetime uh, referendum that is perhaps the most important vote we're going to have in our lifetime um, isn't even subject to judicial scrutiny, right? So, so this is where we are. Um, now, the, the other two exclusions, which also, as a result of that statement I've just made about the uh, European Convention, fall outside the scope of um, uh, scrutiny under the European Convention is the first um, that concerns this bar of living outside the UK for more than 15 years which, which many UK citizens have done uh, now living um, including many of whom in European states, including many uh, members of the House of Lords, about 10% of the House of Lords actually lives permanently outside the United Kingdom uh, mostly uh, in uh, um, France um, uh, Spain and other places. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this particular restriction that is kept is that the government itself describes it in its own manifesto uh, and Queen's speech as arbitrary. So, um, so you, would, you don't need to be an administrative lawyer to understand that, that, at least in theory, had this been subject to judicial scrutiny, would raise some difficulty uh, in terms of justifying something that you define as arbitrary and would want to scrap in the same Queen's speech. Um, there wasn't parliamentary time to do this before the most important vote uh, in a generation. So that hasn't happened. And now, the, the, other, the other group is EU citizens uh, who are um, living in the UK, regardless of how long they live here. Of course, except if they just also happen to be uh, citizens of the Republic of Ireland or Commonwealth citizens, uh, like Cypriots and Maltese. Now, Whilst with the Irish there's a, it's a more complicated picture because Irish citizens pursuant to the Ireland Act 1949 also don't need uh, leave to remain, they have automatic leave to remain, and so you might say they're quasi-UK citizens, whether they like their title, I think, could, could be debated, I'll leave it to the Irish in the room. Uh, but the, the striking thing about those Commonwealth citizens is they are actually living in the United Kingdom exercising EU treaty rights, right? That is the basis for the Cypriots and the Maltese being here um, now. And so, um, so that in, in itself creates uh, a bit of an oddity of the connection to residence and, uh, and, and, and membership, but it's also an oddity because of the outcome. And this is why I've alluded to, I've written elsewhere about the potential challenge under EU law here, because we actually end up with three uh, with nationals of three EU member states who can vote in this referendum um, and uh, nationals of 24 others sort of the UK excluded who can't uh, and this is actually a vote that uh, regardless of how you view it um, uh, is meant to have some sort of an impact on the exercise of EU treaty rights in this country or at least so says uh, the designated um, vote leave campaign uh, so um, 
so this points, I think, to, um, to quite an important observation, and that is that we do have qualifications for voting. Um, and as I said, one is the question of age, which everybody would agree there needs to be some sort of threshold and there could be a legitimate debate as to, uh, as to where it stands. Uh, but, but, but we all agree also that uh, a degree of attachment to a community that's signified by membership is needed uh, to participate. But what that translates to in terms of criteria is a far less obvious outcome if one looks at the international standards. Um, so we had, and we have seen in the context of this Brexit franchise, questions of citizenship, residence, being mixed and mashed up inconsistently uh, throughout the same franchise uh, without a particular redress. And we've had an issue of conviction or imprisonment where it's only by virtue of falling outside an ambit of a uh, legal provision that it's not subject to uh, proper scrutiny. Now the reason I say these are important issues is because uh, voting doesn't just uh, mean something for individuals, it also means much something for the societies in which uh, that voting takes place. Now if we think about individuals, it's precisely that point about membership that comes to the fore, right? It's precisely that notion that if you're excluded, if you are a, an EU citizen here who lives here for 20 years, uh, and you've for all, way, for, for all intents and purposes seen yourself as part of the UK, then the fact that you're excluded, and, and we can then debate whether that inclusion is, is reasonable or not, uh, clearly has an impact on how you are perceived by society and by implication how you perceive that society you live in, in terms of the equal worth, concern and respect. And it's also the fact that voting itself is an autonomy-enhancing expressive act. And it also legitimates, in the eyes of many, the other political activities. So it is true that the freedom, freedom of expression is not conditional uh, upon citizenship. Uh, there's this um, defunct provision, Article 16 of the European Convention, that's never been applied about limiting political activities of aliens. But substantively, it is there. It is lacking there in terms of whether those who are not really quite members can participate fully in that discussion. Now, the reason that matters is because if we look particularly at this referendum we're facing, uh, it is at the moment on a knife's edge. Um, and it is clear that whichever franchise would have been chosen would have affected it, which in turn means that the legitimating factor of the franchise is fundamental, and Michael was talking about the indigenous population in Canada, but here you might, you might talk about the question of this chasm between Commonwealth citizens and EU citizens, if one is to, ex to include non-citizens in the franchise. Um, it's also that the voting uh, processes are facilitated, they regard prioritization of public interest, in this context a very significant public interest, and it's against that background that I suggest that if we look at what the ICCPR is saying, it's not actually giving us a sufficiently um, rigorous or sufficiently um, uh, 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 scrutinizable standard. But it says that every citizen should have the right and opportunity without any of the distinctions in Article 2. So the distinction in Article 2 referred to race, and religion and, uh, um, and, and gender and, and things which we, we have thankfully left behind, or at least uh, liberal democracies have. Um, but it then says without unreasonable restrictions. And this is intended 
to address issues like residence, perhaps. Um, but it does so in a way that leaves this particular point open. Uh, and I suggest leaves it then lacking sufficient scrutiny. So I just want to close the last couple of minutes uh, and, and point to some um, instruments where at least in the limited scope of, 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 uh, of application of these instruments, uh, these standards have, have been put to bear or been born to bear. One is really that Convention for Protection of the Rights of All Migrant Workers and Members of Their Family. And the interesting thing about this convention is that generally speaking it talks about the rights of migrant workers in the countries of residence because this is where they live and this is where they're subject to potential exploitation and needs for worker protection uh, and the like. But it's in relation to political rights, both to protection abroad, which Ben has mentioned earlier in relation to Guy's work on, on Al-Rawi, uh, but also in relation to political participation, where they continuously link the, uh, the migrant worker to their country of origin. So it says in explicit binding language that migrant workers and members of the family shall have the right to participate in public affairs of their state of origin and to vote and be elected in elections of that state. And the, um, the European Commission, within its ambit of application, that is within uh, the context of EU nationals, uh, EU nationals who move to another EU uh, state, exercising their EU treaty rights and consequently losing their right to vote in their state of origin, has said to the five states which have some sort of an arbitrary line, like the UK, you shouldn't. You should... Um, in those instances, retain the right to vote because the assumption is that non-citizens, generally speaking, don't get the right to vote in the state in which they reside. And so we need to set some sort of a universal standard, at least across the Council of Europe. Uh, at least, sorry, the, the, uh, the European Union. Um, in relation to non-resident, um, to non-citizen residents, um, the, um, the commitment internationally is much more lax and much more limited. So we know that in the European space that, it, that does extend to Europeans living in another EU member state pursuant to the treaties. Uh, but internationally, we have no international treaty that says there is a political participation right for non um, uh, for non-citizen residents. The closest we get is the European Convention on the Participation of Foreigners in Public Life at the local level, and that refers to local elections only, to five years of residence, and has only been ratified by ten states. So um, this presents a, a complex picture, I think, and so I, I want to close with uh, a citation from the first edition of Free and Fair Elections, which we've already uh, had an allusion to, uh, where Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill says in 1994 that this may not be the moment to make representative democracy a condition of membership in the society of nations. Um, it would be interesting to ask him whether in 2016 he, he has a different view. I've looked at whether this paragraph has gone un undergone a change in the second edition and it hasn't, so, so I don't know what that suggests. Uh, but he says then later, it is certainly not too early to assess that the manner in which the will of the people is translated into representative authority has indeed become a proper subject of international law. And what I would argue, it should become a much more important subject of scrutiny by international institutions. Thank you.